Some of you heard quite a bit of what I'm going to say already, but don't switch off. Because God will still speak to you, give you fresh understanding. Um, This is part five of our Come Buy, Come Drink, Come Eat series. And we began looking at Isaiah 55, and then we've been then we looked at Revelation chapter three, one of the letters there. And if we have the PowerPoint, last week we all read together Revelation three. This week I'd like us to read together Isaiah 55 and the letter in Revelation three. So let's read Isaiah 55 together first of all. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. Why spend bread on money on what is not bread, and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. And now, Revelation 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot, I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And last week we finished off our study of verse 19, which is those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. And I wonder how you've been getting on with getting to grips with the subject of the Lord's discipline. His preferred method of discipline is is internal, but also his use of external discipline too. And last week I gave an example of possible my experience of external discipline. I wonder how you've been getting on with internal and external matters of God's discipline in your life the last week. Any successes? Remember we talked about judgmentalism and my experience of being taught a valuable lesson externally of God's disciplining me about being judgmental and judging wrongly. Um, Have you had any successes with that particularly? Any small successes, maybe? Maybe you've noticed them a bit more and you're a bit quicker to police them and not entertain them and start agreeing with them and 
but actually um, allowing the words of Jesus to prune your thoughts. Have you been able to do that in a little way? Remembering the scriptures, what Jesus said, and actually saying, no, I'm not going there. Have you been able to remember to do what Jesus told us in the parable of the speck and the plank? If you catch yourself judging, Jesus says, just simply turn it around and judge yourself first. Now, don't condemn yourself. That's the devil's hobby, isn't it? Condemning people, making them feel condemned. But we are called to judge ourselves. Be quick to judge yourself at the same measure you are using to judge others. And nine times out of ten, you'll soon discover you are the last one who should be pointing a finger or making judgments against that situation or that person. And what you'll find is you end up, if, you, if you're quick to judge yourself with the same measure you're using to judge others, you'll, quick, you'll actually decide, ah, oh, what I need to be doing is praying for that person or praying for that situation or praying for yourself. But we've got, gotten beyond that verse now. We're going to my favorite bit, which is the Jesus knocking bit. Does anyone have that as a favorite bit? Now, right near the beginning of the Bible, in the first few chapters and the fourth chapter, actually, of Genesis, we learn from the Lord speaking to Cain that... Next slide, please. Oh, there it is. Genesis 4, 7. The Lord said to Cain, Sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. And Jesus, we haven't got the slide for it, but Jesus in John 8 confirms this, saying, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. That's the sad fact. Anyone who sins is a slave to sin. And here God, right at the beginning of mankind, is saying, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. But... Right near the end of the Bible, at the beginning we hear about sin crouching at the door, having you, wanting to have you. But right at the end of the Bible, what do we hear? Who's at the door? Jesus. He's at the door and he wants to have you. Or actually he wants to have a meal with you. That's what Jesus wants. He wants to fellowship with you. He doesn't want to have you in an aggressive, kind of like take you away kind of sense. But he wants to have you in a relationship kind of sense, for your benefit, for his benefit as well. Who were you made for? Jesus. All things were made for him, by him, through him, and for him. You were made for Jesus, and he wants you. He's knocking at the door. Okay. Now, in his letter to his beloved Christians in Laodicea that we've read there in Revelation 3, Jesus informed them of their dreadful state which is lukewarmness. And then he's told them what they need to do, which is, what do they need to do? If they're lukewarm, he says, I counsel you to, can you remember? Buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and, yep, salve for your eyes and, Garments, white garments, which is basically acts of righteousness, okay? He's counseling them, so he's told them the problem. The dreadful problem is this. Here's the answer to this dreadful problem. Come and buy from me. Be like Isaiah 55, isn't it? 
And now he closes his letter with, this is how to do it. The problem is this. The answer is this. Now here's how to do it. Okay? What is the answer? What's the how, sorry? What is the how? He's told them the problem. They're lukewarm. He's told them they need to come and buy from him. Now, how do they do it? What's the answer we just read? Open the door and let him in. Okay, that's the how. Next slide, please. Now, here we have, I thought, he looks like a Scottish or Irish Jesus. Uh, there, with his kind of ginger, ginger hair and beard. Um, that is Holman Hunt's very famous Light of the World painting. And remember, someone said, well, isn't there a door handle on the outside? You forgot to put a door handle on the outside. And what did Holman Hunt say? <clears throat> That's on purpose. There's only one door handle. It's on the inside. It's the person's heart. They need to open it, not Jesus. Now, we've noticed the buy and eat similarity between the Old Testament, Isaiah 55, and Jesus' letter here. Both are talking about coming, buying, eating from Jesus. God's desire for a real relational exchange going on has not changed from the beginning to now. But has anyone spotted a subtle difference between the Old Testament and New Testament? Between Isaiah 55 and Revelation 3? Well, in the Old Testament passage, in Isaiah 55, God tells them five times to come to him. Okay? And yet in this New Testament passage, in Revelation 3, Jesus says, he's come to your door. That's the amazing difference that Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension has made to humanity, to the world is now that Jesus bore your sins, died, took them to the center of the earth, and then resurrected as the living Savior, and now ascended to heaven. He can now send the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, to those who become born again, because they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. He's forgiven their sins and cleansed them of all unrighteousness, and now his Spirit can dwell with people. He can come to them, as well as them coming to him. Isn't that amazing? That's the difference of the gospel, of Jesus' sacrifice. Jesus says, I've come and I'm knocking at you, I've come to you. However, we're assuming that being the church in Laodicea, Jesus is writing to born-again believers. Do we reckon that? Yeah, they're born-again believers. So surely the Holy Spirit has already come to be with them and even in them, as Jesus described and promised in John 14, 17, However, in their lukewarmness, it appears they are not letting him in. There's some kind of problem for a lukewarm Christian when it comes to Jesus being, having a relationship, this meal, being letting them in, letting him in. There seems to be a difference between receiving Jesus at the time of their salvation and subsequently being with Jesus in their walk with him. Now, to help understand this conundrum, it might help us to think back to our school days. Can you remember any of your primary school teachers? Yeah? All of them? Some of them? Can you name them? Mr. Manchi? 
Machi, Mr. Machi, any more? Mr. Westrum, Mr. Farrand, Mr. Flinch, Finch, sorry. Right. Now, I can picture a few faces from my primary school teachers, but I can only name two. One of them is our teacher, head teacher, Mr. Ives, because he was very scary, very scary. And my year six teacher, Mr. White. Now, probably because he was the more recent than my primary school teacher, he was the last one I had, but also because he was the football coach. So maybe I have more of an affiliation with him as well, Mr. White being the football coach. Um, actually, when I was reading my notes this morning um, to, to remember them, um, I said, ah, there's another teacher I remember as well, and that was Mrs. Solly. Mrs. Solly was the head teacher of the infants. I don't know who the head teacher of the... Oh, yeah, Mr. Ives was the head teacher of the... Uh, the what do you call it? Infants and juniors? Mrs. Solly was the infants, and I remember her name because one day I was overheard telling one of my friends, Mrs. Solly is a wally. Ooh. And I got pulled into Mr. S- Mrs. Solly's office because I got found out that I was them. Yeah. So I remember Mrs. Solly as well. But I wonder if you remember the person at your primary school who didn't teach but was always there. Yes. Your mum, your mum was in the school, was she? Dinner lady, dinner lady. yeah. <laughs> Margaret, who was? Dinner lady. lady? Mrs. Wright. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'll tell you who I remember. I only remember two head teachers and one teacher, but I do remember my school caretaker. Yeah. Do you remember your school caretaker? Mr. Housen? Mine was Mr. Driscoll. Mr. Driscoll, the school caretaker. Now, do you remember your school caretaker? Only we know Jude does. Yes, you do? Mr. Marsh? Yeah? It's really strange, but I can't remember all my teachers' names who I was locked in a classroom with for, uh, every, for a year. Um, that's in inverted brackets for those who are listening. I wasn't really locked in the classroom with them. But it felt like that. Um, being in a classroom with hours with these teachers, but I only remember one of their names. But I can remember Mr. Driscoll, our caretaker. Why do you think I remember his name above most of my teachers? Maybe. Sorry, Mr. He, he took care of me. Maybe it was because the teachers changed every year. But Mr. Driscoll remained the same, kind of. He was always there doing his thing. Maybe it was because you knew he was there before anyone else arrived and he would be there after everyone's gone to close up. Maybe because he'd, he'd, he'd be seen all over the premises, not just in your classroom, but wherever you go, there every now and again there'd be Mr. Driscoll taking care of things, doing this, doing that, generally looking after the whole school, buildings, premises, 
filling or emptying bins and things, taking care of everyone kind of sense. And maybe it's because you have the power of the keys and the responsibility of the whole buildings and grounds, yet he seemed to be the most humblest of the staff members. Now, perhaps I'm painting quite a romantic picture, like rose-tinted glasses of childhood kind of thoughts or memories of Mr. Driscoll. Now, as you probably know, Marie, my wife, is a childminder, and one of her little, little girls in care, in Marie's care, um, is quite shy, and Marie drops her off at school each morning. And their uh, caretaker, Mr. Hills, Mr. Hills noticed that Emma Gracie is quite shy, and he thought he'd help her a little bit by saying to Emma Gracie, Emma Gracie, I wonder if you could cheer me up every morning and tell me a joke. So every morning, on their way to school, Emma Gracie uses Marie's phone to Google jokes and picks one that she likes that think Mr. Hills would appreciate. Then, is it up the driveway? In the middle of the driveway. Yep. Okay. Right in the middle where the two entrances converge before the playground, Mr. Hills meets Emma Gracie there, and Emma Gracie shares her joke. And Mr. Hills, I'm guessing, laughs. He does, yeah. And it's good for Emma Gracie. Brings her out of her shell a bit. Now maybe this little girl, when she's 50 years old, and her pastor asks her one Sunday morning, can you remember any of your primary school teachers? Maybe Mr. Hills will be right up there on her list. Now, I'm pretty sure my school, which was Benson Primary School in Shirley, Croydon, didn't have a caretaker's house on the school premises. Did yours? Did your school have a care? Yes, Wendy's nodding. Did anyone else's? Yes, Marie's does. I know that there are some schools in Orpington that have caretaker's houses. Perry Hall has one. Um, Newstead Woods has one. Poverest has one. So many schools have a specially built house on the premises for the caretaker to live in so that he or she is there all the time to look after the school grounds and everything that uh, goes on there. Now, this might seem like a silly question, but would the caretaker get much caretaking done if he didn't leave his house? He's on the premises, but he wouldn't get much caretaking done, would he, from staying inside his house? Well, with that in mind, let's go to 1 Peter 2.25. 1 Peter 2.25. It says this. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now the Greek word for overseer can also be translated as caretaker. Jesus, who declared, I am the good shepherd, is the shepherd 
and the caretaker of your soul. Rather like a caretaker of a school who lives and works on the school grounds, Jesus the Good Shepherd is the shepherd and caretaker of your soul. He lives in the schoolhouse, but he needs to work in the school buildings and grounds. Jesus lives in your spirit, but he is caretaker of your soul. And no one else can take care of your soul like Jesus can. But what is our soul? Our spirit is the life force of God that when we die, our spirit leaves our body. I don't know if you remember last week when we looked at um, judgment, making right judgments, and we read Hebrews, it called God the Father of Spirits. That's where we return to. He gave us our spirit, and we return to him, the Father of our spirits. When our, when our, our body dies, our spirit leaves our body. When we become Christians, that part of us, our spirit, that's the part that becomes born again. Completely clean and holy. Sadly, not our soul, not our body. We're still unholy, unclean in many ways, but our spirit becomes totally clean, totally washed, totally holy, and therefore, because of our new holiness, the Holy Spirit can then be poured into our spirits. We also have a body, which the Bible refers to as our tent, or earth suit, our temporary tent whilst on this earth. And the wonderful thing is that we get a new, permanent, incorruptible, nothing going wrong with it, body when we get home to heaven. <laughs> Hallelujah. And then we have our soul, which is what I like to refer to as the bit that goes in between our body and our spirit. It comprises of our mind, our will, our emotions. It probably includes our conscience too. And in my experience, our soul tends to be like a bit of a sponge. It soaks up everything around us, good or bad. We can't help it. Our soul tends to absorb what is happening, what is going on, what we see, what we hear, what we feel. That's just the way it is. Our soul is so important to who we are and what we do. It's a beautiful gift from God. Just like your spirit, your soul is breathed by God. And it's another part of us that God made in the image of himself. God is spirit, it says. And he created us as a spirit. But did you know that God has a soul? Did you know that? Let's turn to Jeremiah. Jeremiah 32, 41. This is God speaking. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will assuredly plant them in this land with all my heart and soul. God's saying he has a soul. Now, I've made a note in my Bible. God has a soul, exclamation mark, which is what Jude is doing right now. God has a soul, next to that verse. 
<laughs> All right. So just like God, who is spirit, as Jesus confirmed in John chapter 4, God has a soul, and we are a spirit and soul too, made in God's image. Now our soul is the part of us that the Holy Spirit wants to well up from our spirits, through our mind, our will, and emotions to produce 30, 60, 100-fold of his fruit. Borrow chocolate for anyone who can name all seven fruit of the Holy Spirit. All seven. Can you name all seven in the Galatians? I kind of all mumbling. Are you just checking? Apples. You're thinking of that, that youth song, aren't you? The fruit of the Spirit is not a coconut or an apple. Yes. Fruit of the Spirit is? Hold on. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self self Okay, faithfulness and self-control. Definitely Alex was correcting me there. Anyone else reckon they got all seven correctly? Jude? I think I should go back to Bible school, shouldn't I? Is it nine fruits of the Holy Spirit? Okay. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. Okay. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> so our soul is the part of us that the Holy Spirit within our spirit wants to well up through our mind, our will, our emotions, our actions, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. The soul is a beautiful thing that can be beautifully fruitful, 30, 60, 100-fold of an amazing harvest and abundance of God's fruit in our lives. Unfortunately, though, our soul is also the part of us that experiences bitterness, resentment, rejection, pain, wounds, unforgiveness, and all those other things that we wish we could be free from. So at the point of salvation, a Christian just like the Laodiceans had received the Spirit of Jesus. This is what the Bible says. Next slide, please. Galatians 4, 6 says, Because you are his sons, God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. The Spirit who cries out, Abba, Father. So when a believer becomes a believer, they get repent, get saved, get born again, and then God pauses the spirit of his son into our hearts. That's probably why we use the phrase, have you received Jesus into your heart yet? Okay. So, the Laodicean Christians have received the spirit of God's son into their hearts. But then, here's what Jesus is saying to them. He's knocking on the door of their souls. Their mind, their will, their emotions, and he says... Let me in. I want to eat with you and you with me. But how? 
Do we let him in to our soul to be the caretaker? If he's, I say to children, I say, God, like the caretaker has a house built for him on the school grounds, God built inside of you a house for Jesus, which is your heart, your spirit. But now, Jesus, the caretaker, wants to come out of that house each day and take care of your soul. Now, let's end with a bit of a teaser for next week. Psalm 143, verse 6. Psalm of David. He says, I spread out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. You know everyone's soul thirsts for God? It's how we're made. We're made for Jesus, remember? He's the caretaker of our souls. Our souls thirst for Jesus. And deep down, everyone knows they have a thirsty soul. But sadly, most don't realize that it's a relationship with Jesus that quenches that thirst. What did Jesus say to the woman at the well? The water I give you will well up in you like a living spring and you will never thirst again. He wasn't talking about physical thirst. He was talking about soul thirst. Without proper understanding of the good news of Jesus and what he's saying, People's thirsty souls tend to lead down all sorts of false and disappointing avenues. But thankfully, David was a man after God's own heart, and he knew who his soul thirsted for. So here's the rest of the, or a bit more of the psalm. Verse 6 again, I spread out my hands to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, O Lord, my spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, or I will be like those who go down to the pit. Let the morning bring me word of your unfailing love, for I have put my trust in you. Show me the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. And this is the one of the main ways to open the door and meet with Jesus, is you lift up your soul to him. What does that look like? How do we lift up our soul? How do we let him in? Well, more next week. But for now, next slide, please. Let's just read the glorious end to Jesus' letter and the antidote to lukewarmness and the way we begin to buy from him gold of our rich relationship with him salve for our eyes so we begin to see him and see from a heavenly perspective and righteous garments being in the right place at the right time with the Lord. Jesus said, here's the antidote. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Is Jesus a liar? He's God who cannot lie.